Welcome to today's message from First Baptist Church in Divine, Texas, where our mission is to equip all generations to impact lives for Christ. You can find today's message and more information at www.fbcdivine.org. Now, let's listen to the latest teaching from First Baptist Church, Divine. Paul writes to the church at Colossae, beginning in verse 15 of Colossians chapter 1. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. This is the word of the Lord this morning. And we start by my raising a question to you. What's the difference between a committed and an uncommitted Christian? Or maybe said another way, the difference between a hot and a lukewarm Christian? Or said another way, the difference between the disciple who has Jesus in the driver's seat or the so-called disciple who has Jesus in the back seat? Well, the answer to that question all comes down to what we really believe about Christ. See, people whose lives revolve around their relationship with Jesus, they are convinced that Jesus is the solution to every problem, and Jesus is the answer to every question. They believe this, that Jesus is better. They believe that Jesus is a better Savior, that He is a better satisfier, that He is a better guide, and He is a better friend. That's Paul's whole point in this letter to the Colossians. Now, if you don't know this, Paul writes this letter from a Roman jail when he heard about how this young congregation in Colossae were turning from their relationship with Christ to religion. They were turning from the real Jesus to counterfeit Christ's. They were turning from faith in what Christ had done for them to faith in what they can, they can or might do for Him. And the point of Paul's letter is that the essence of Christianity is our relationship with Jesus. And that relationship is to influence every aspect of our lives. So today we're, we're taking a shift away from Luke to spend a few weeks studying what the Apostle Paul is writing to this young church about just who Jesus Christ is. Now, if you would recall, for these last few weeks, we've come to see that Jesus was the one who was promised. He was the one who was expected. Uh, that He was the one that, in every, that in everything to do with His arrival was miraculous. And He's the one whom our lives' focus should be exclusively upon. 
And the passage that I've read to you is written in the form of a poem it's, or a song, if you like. It's a song about Jesus. And this song is about Jesus and all that He has accomplished for us as it summarizes the entire story of the Bible. If we compare this song to one today, we might say that verses 15 and 16 and verses 18 and 20 are, are verses of a contemporary song. And verse 17 is the chorus. The chorus of the song being that part that contains the big or the grand idea of it. And so the song ends and Paul applies the lesson of the song to the Colossians, which we'll see, begin to see the application of this song when we come together next week. But this song is the story of the Bible. It's the story that begins with creation and ends with the rescue and renewal of all the creation. And the hero of that story is Jesus. And this morning I want to look at two things that this song tells us about Jesus and why he is better than anything we're ever going to find. And how believing that Jesus is better will actually transform our lives. Now you may have heard it preached, you may have heard it taught, that we're saved by faith in Christ, and we grow by faith in Christ. And so Paul begins this letter by reminding the Colossians about who it is they actually received when they received Jesus. So I want to start our time by, by looking at the chorus of the song, by, by considering the implications of verse 17, because this is the big grand idea of the song. He is before all things, speaking of Jesus, and in him all things hold together. Now, Paul could not make this point that Jesus is God any clearer because he describes Jesus in terms only God can be described by. Paul writes that Jesus is before all things. In other words, Jesus existed before the creation of anything. Jesus was not created, but existed prior to creation. We might be right to remember what the Apostle John writes at the beginning of his gospel, which begins in this way. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The Word is Jesus. Jesus was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Jesus, and without Jesus was not anything made that was made. Now, there's one other book of the Bible that starts within the beginning. Can you remember which one that is? Genesis. Genesis starts with that. Genesis chapter 1 is about the beginning of everything that exists. And we remember, we think about what John is saying. We notice that John doesn't say, in the beginning, the word began also. He doesn't say that. John says, no, in the beginning the Word already was because the Word was with God and the Word was God. Now, Christians believe that the Bible teaches that God is a trinity of persons. Three persons in one, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Each are equally God. And because Jesus is God, He's not dependent on anything because He existed before there was anything. All things exist and all things depend on Him. That's why Paul writes in the song's chorus, In Him all things hold together. Jesus both created and maintains everything in the universe. 
Jesus controls everything. He sustains everything. In fact, what we call the the laws of nature, the Bible calls the power and the wisdom of Christ. See, nothing can happen without, without Christ's permission. Nothing can run beyond the boundaries that Jesus has set. Jesus sustains and Jesus orders everything that exists. And the big idea of this song, which the chorus expresses, is that Jesus is greater than everything and everything, everyone else because Jesus is God. In other words, Jesus is supreme because Jesus is greater than everything. And Jesus is greater than everyone else because He's God. And the two verses of this song, they celebrate Jesus' supremacy. His supremacy in creation and His supremacy in redemption. And Paul's point is that because Jesus is the hero of the story of the Bible, He ought to be the hero of our story as well. Now the first verse of the song is about Jesus' relationship to creation. We find this in verses 15 and 16. He's the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created, in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. Created through him and for him. When the Bible says that Jesus is the image of the invisible God, it's referring to Jesus the man. What do I mean by that? Well, God created Adam and Eve and every human being in his own image. My friend, you are made in the image of God. I am made in the image of God. Everybody around the world is made in the image of God. Every human being is to reflect who God is. We have a problem with this reflection idea. The image that we reflect... It's been marred, it's been tainted, it's been soiled by sin. So the the Son of God then becomes man who is the very image of God. He reflects God perfectly. That's why Jesus says in John chapter 14 and verse 9, whoever has seen me has seen the Father. And why the Bible also says that no one has ever seen God. The only God who is at the Father's side. He, speaking of Jesus, has made the Father known. Well, how can anyone possibly know what Jesus is really like? It's an excellent question. The Bible answers it in this way. It says to look at and to look to Jesus Christ. It's really important that we grasp onto this, by the way, because I believe that there are lots of so-called Christians who want to believe what I'm saying right now. Who want to believe that God took on flesh and dwelt among us. That God went to a cross. That died for our sins. That was raised on the third day. Want to believe this. But they haven't the foggiest who Jesus really is. We all have a basic starting point in life. It's where an, where an agnostic starts, by the way. It's where, we, where I think most of us start. We start in this way. We are uncertain that there's a God. And in our own way, we wonder, we ask ourselves the question in wonderment, how can I know if there's a God? 
I mean, I can't see him. I can't hear him. I can't smell him. I can't feel him. And this is what we have to come to terms with. (laughs) Jesus declares of himself, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. If you've seen me, you've seen God himself. And we have to come to terms with whether we're going to accept the claims of Christ or we're going to reject the claims of Christ. Now I'll tell you, Jesus was an actual historical figure who can be investigated, he can be observed. And so I think the better question for us to ask is this. What evidence is there? Is there any evidence that Jesus is God? We look right here what the Bible says. Jesus is the image of the invisible God. We don't have to ask for God to reveal himself. He already has. We need only look to Jesus. God became a human to reveal himself to humans and to redeem us for the destiny for which we're created. Which is why Jesus, the man, is the perfect image of the invisible God. And the Bible adds that Jesus is also the firstborn of all creation. Firstborn? What do you mean? I mean, we read in the chorus, we already learned that Jesus is God, that Jesus is uncreated, that Jesus is without beginning or without end. He's the Alpha and the Omega. He's existed before all things. How can Jesus be born? Well, how can can he be the firstborn of all creation since the verse goes on to say that he created everything that's been created? Seems like a logical fallacy, right? You can't have a chicken and an egg pop up at the same time. The firstborn of all creation doesn't mean the firstborn created. The the first thing created. In the Bible, the firstborn son enjoyed a higher status than his brothers. He received the largest share of the family inheritance. He became the ruler of the family once his father died. So the, the term firstborn became synonymous with the idea or the concept of a ruler or an heir. And that's what it means here. In Jesus' case, the Father, the first person of the Trinity, gives His Son all of creation to rule. Which is why He's the firstborn of all creation. And here's why Jesus is the firstborn or the ruler of creation. Verse 16. For by him all things were created. Every last thing is created by him, through him, and for him. Everything we know that we can feel, that we can touch, that we can smell, that we can see, was created by Jesus, and through Jesus, and for Jesus. So I want to make a point here. I think it's a needful point that needs to be said. Friend, Jesus is as real as the seat you are comfortably sitting in right now. Jesus is not a superstition. He's not a Casper-like ghost. He's not a character in a story that fascinates your mind or, or captures your imagination like the ones that are peddled about Captain America or Superman. He's none of those things. All things exist because of Jesus. All things are are presently being sustained by Jesus. All things exist for Jesus. And I want, I know what some of you are thinking right now. Pastor Dan, this is really abstract for me right now. I had a terrible week. 
I came here wanting some practical help with, with my life. This isn't helping me a bit. Well, I want you to know you came to the right place. But according to the Bible, understanding yourself, understanding what you're dealing with, understanding life itself, it begins with understanding Jesus. See, everything that is, every last thing that is, exists because of Jesus and for Jesus. He's the reason for everything. He's the Alpha and the Omega. He's the beginning and the end. Why does the universe exist? For Jesus. Why does the earth exist? For Jesus. Why do you exist? For Jesus. All creation was designed for Him. And that includes you and me. He is the purpose of our life. We were designed by Him. We were designed for Him. And we will never know real life until we find it in Him. Until we discover His purposes for us. It's Pastor Tim Keller who says, and I believe Keller's right when he says this, that there are really only two approaches to God. Two approaches to God. We either approach God as the means, or we approach God as the end. We either approach God as the means, or the end itself. See, God is either the end which we seek, or a means to another end that we seek. And how I approach God makes all the difference in whether I find Him or not. There was a guy who was sitting on a beach. He's just absolutely heartbroken because the girl had been dating tells him that she wants to date another guy. The guy's devastated. I mean, he's convinced himself he can't live without her and he's wondering how he's, he's going to be able to go on. So he's sitting there on this beach and he's looking outward upon the ocean waves as they're rolling in and there's a little puddle of tears forming beneath his, uh, between his legs. A couple of guys walk up to him and they ask, hey, can, can, uh, can we talk to you about Jesus Christ? And the heartbroken guy says, sure, what do I got to lose? And they sit down and begin to tell him about Christ. They begin to tell him about what it means to surrender to Jesus. And when these, these two witnesses finish, the heartbroken guy says, hey, this is all great. I've got one question for you. If I give my life to Christ, do you think he'll give me another girl? i got to ask you a question. Was Jesus the end for him? Or was Jesus only the means to an end? Well, I hope you know he's only the means to the end for him. The guy didn't want Jesus. He wanted a girl. He wanted that girl that broke up with him specifically. What is it that you understand of Jesus Christ? Is he just someone who would, who would help you get you what you want in life? I mean, I want, I want to ask you to be honest because far too many have approached Jesus in the wrong way, my friend. We come to Christ in the hope that, that he's going to give us a spouse or that he's going to get us a job or that he's going to give us some, some sense of financial security or that he's going to free us from our depression. Or how about this? Because he's going to give us heaven, Right? Friend, did you come to Jesus just because heaven sounded better than hell? Are you contemplating Jesus because heaven sounds better than hell? See, under any of those scenarios, Jesus is not your end. 
He's just a means to some other end. Friend, Jesus is the end and he is the purpose of our lives. And Jesus is vastly superior to anything he might give to us. That's what Abraham discovers when when we read our, our Bibles in the book of Genesis. When God first speaks to Abraham in Genesis chapter 12, he promises to Abraham that if he will leave his country, that he'll leave his relatives and he'll leave his father's house and he'll go to the land that God shows him, that God will make Abraham's name great. That he's going to give him a son. That he's going to give him a homeland. Yeah, he promised him all of that. He says he basically says, Abraham, pack up your bags, load up, head out, and I'm going to tell you where you're going somewhere along the way once you're out on the road. By the way, Abraham's not a spring chicken. He's 75. And his wife, Sarah, she's barren. She hasn't been able to provide to him a son. And the, the desire of Abraham's heart, he wants a son very badly. So Abraham trusts this. I mean, there's enough incentive in, in this for him to, to, to follow God. So he leaves the familiarity of his homeland. He follows God in whatever measure of faith that Abraham has. I wonder if we read our Bibles closely, if the Abraham that is met by God in Genesis chapter 12 viewed God as his end, or if he was just a means to an end. And I would suggest to you that that early interaction, Abraham's understanding was that God was just a means to an end. He promised Abraham that if Abraham would just trust him, Abraham would be greatly rewarded. And here's the thing, God kept all his promises. God is ever faithful. God is never uh, not going to meet the expectation he has set. He has signed his name to the covenants that he has advanced. God's not going to fail any one of us. He didn't fail Abraham in anything he promised. But later on, God appears to Abraham and he says, and you find this in Genesis chapter 15, verse 1, the the very first verse of, of the 15th chapter of Genesis. He says, hey, buddy. This is God. He says, Abraham, I'm your reward. I'm your reward. And that's the ultimate lesson every person of faith has to learn. God himself is our reward. God himself is our end. God himself is our purpose for living. God himself is the goal of our existence. God himself has created us by his own hand. We've been created for him. And contentment is going to elude us until we find that our contentment only comes from a relationship with him. So is Christ your end, my friend? Or has he just been a means to an end of whatever you really want in life? I don't know how to answer that question you might be saying. Well, let me help you. Here's how you can tell. I'm going to ask you questions. You just think about this. How do you react when your prayers aren't answered? How do you react when you do the right thing and bad things happen as a result? How do you react when you faithfully serve God and you don't get the things that you want? Do you become bitter? Or do you remember that you serve Jesus to get Jesus himself and not what Jesus can give you? Again, I'm citing Tim Keller. He illustrates this uh, problem of approaching God in this way. He says, imagine that you're walking along some busy street, maybe 
I don't know if you've noticed the traffic in Divine. This could be very well just here on a, on a weekday morning, the school rush hour. But suppose you, you see a pedestrian who's about, who's about to get hit by a car. And you lunge out and you push the guy out of the way so he doesn't get hit by the car. And in the process of, of lunging and pushing the guy and saving his life, you tear your pants and you think to yourself, oh no, I tore my pants. I really like these pants. And of course, the guy whose life you saved, he's grateful. He's singing gratitude to you, maybe. I don't know. And he tells you something like, thank you, you saved my life. I'm just so grateful. I don't know what to say. But you reply, yeah, but I tore my pants. What does that communicate to him, the person you saved? What does it communicate? You're telling him that your pants were more important than his life. Where am I going with this? That's what we say to God when we get mad when he doesn't give us what we think we deserve. In effect, we say to God, God, I served you. God, I've been good. God, I've done every last thing you expected me. I've kept all your rules, and yet you, you haven't given me the financial security I need. You haven't given me the marriage I want. Well, there's many pastors in the world today who say, God, I preach every Sunday, but you haven't given me the, the platform I seek or desire. Why do I even serve you? And Christ replies, don't you know all along you get me? Can you imagine you're asking these questions in, in your anger with God and, and God himself looks at you and he says, but you get me. All along you, 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 you get me. Am I not enough to you, man? Am I not enough? By the way, I think this is the reason why so many of our prayers go unanswered. So many of our prayers go unanswered because Christ wants to teach us that He is our reward. That He is our end. That He is the purpose of our life. Because we're designed for Him and we're designed by Him. And we're never going to experience life. We're never going to realize satisfaction until we find it in Him. We don't serve Him to get something else. We serve Him to get Him. And anything that I might want or anything that you might want more than Jesus, my friend, it is just an idol. And because we were designed for Jesus, if we make anything else our end, well, that's going to end up killing us. It's going to end up killing us. I mean, Jesus isn't going to give us something that's going to kill us. And if Christ is simply a means to whatever we really want, we're never going to get what it is we need. But if Christ is my end, if Christ is my purpose in life, then I get Him, and I get everything else He wants to give me. That's what it means in Matthew chapter 6 when Jesus is uh, proclaiming the, the Sermon on the Mount. He's speaking of His glorious kingdom. And He says this in verse 33, but seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And then he says, and all these things will be added to you. That's what David means when he writes in Psalm 37 and verse 4, Delight yourself in the Lord, and he will give you the desires of your heart. 
Friend, this isn't about your greed or your lusts of heart. It's about what God provides when we have understood that he is our end and our purpose. Once we're clear about the means, once we're clear about the end, once we're living for Jesus Christ to know him and to serve him, he can give us everything because nothing else is competition for his place in our hearts. And in this song about Jesus in the first chapter of Colossians, the Apostle Paul, he's laying the groundwork for an argument that he'll make later in the letter. An argument that he's fighting during this day. An argument about Greek philosophy that taught this idea of dualism. That's a fancy word, I know, but describe it this way. Dualism, the, the, the way of thinking then, would have separated the spiritual and would have separated the material in the universe. Would have separated God and would have separated creation. The Greeks taught that God was good and that the spiritual world was good. They also taught that the material world was evil. Therefore, if you wanted to be spiritual, you would avoid it as much as possible anything material. And the more you deprived yourself of anything material of the world, be it food or marriage or companionship, well, the closer you'd work to getting to God. It's not Christianity, by the way. Jesus isn't detached from his creation. Remember what we learned earlier? All of creation exists because of him. He sustains it all. Think about about our basic needs to live, right? We need air, we need water, we need food. These are all means by which he has created us to depend on his provision, to show us his grace and his goodness in every aspect of our lives. He provides to us, take a deep breath, just breathe in deeply. This isn't some weird exercise, but breathe in, exhale, breathe in, exhale. Every breath you draw, you're breathing in the grace of God. He's given, he's designed us with the need for food, for companionship, for pleasure, for work, for exercise, every last thing we need. But those things should lead us to him, not become substitutes for him. And that's the difference between seeing Jesus as the end and merely as the means to some other end. And I'll tell you, my wife Yvette and I have been married almost 18 years. We're a few months away from our 18th anniversary. And I still worry whenever we're apart for any length of time. When she and I are separated, these thoughts come into my mind. They're fearful thoughts of her safety and they enter. And I have, to, I have to go about dismissing these thoughts by, by reminding myself that my beautiful and precious wife is not my life. Jesus Christ is my life. He is the one who gives me joy. He is the one who makes me happy. But I'm also remembered that Jesus gave to me my wife Yvette. She is, the, she is one of my greatest reminders of God's love and God's concern for me. In my heart, she is not Jesus' competitor, but rather an example of God's goodness toward me. My love for her leads me back to my love for him, just as his love for me makes me love her. And realizing that Jesus is not the means of my life, but the end of my life, 
that he is, is a better purpose for living than any other purpose is one practical example of believing the first verse of this song about him. And how the better we know Christ, the better we understand ourselves. Now the second verse of this song, it completes the story of the Bible. This creation, as good as it is, is not what God created it to be. God didn't create a world of death and violence. He, a world where we eventually lose everything and everyone we care about. The world that we see that's rife with injustice and cruelty that we see all over the place. No sin entered the world that God created. And along with sin came death. And the story of the Bible is how God rescues creation and people from evil and death and restores creation to what He originally created. And in that story, the hero is Jesus. Jesus is the hero of creation. Jesus is the hero of redemption. Which is what the second verse of the song is about. He's the head of the body, the church. He's the beginning, the firstborn from the dead. That in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. And through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on him earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. Not only is Jesus the ruler of all the creation, he's the head of the church. In other words, Jesus is the king of the new creation. Jesus is the beginning of the new creation because he's the firstborn from the dead. The reason that Jesus is the beginning and the firstborn of the new creation is because he is the first man to conquer death. Well, how was Jesus the first? We read in the Bible about people who, who were resurrected, as the Bible describes it, all over the place. There was the kid that Elijah, Elisha raised from the dead, or Jairus' daughter, or, um, or Lazarus himself. There are a number of people who were raised from the dead before Jesus, weren't there? Well, technically, none of those were raised from the dead. Technically, their mortal body was temporarily resuscitated, but each of them eventually died. But Jesus rose from the dead in an immortal body, never again to die, so that we might rise as well. See, Jesus is the beginning of a new, immortal humanity that is free from death itself. Jesus is preeminent. He is everything. He's first place in everything. He gets the first place ribbon in every last thing you might imagine. Jesus is the first place in the old creation. He's the first place in the new creation because it pleased God to dwell fully in, the, in Jesus the man. Meaning that Jesus is fully God and fully human. Which is why, by the way, death could not contain him. And through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. That's the story of the Bible and the gospel in one song. God was in Jesus, rescuing and renewing all creation through the work of Christ. Saving that creation from evil, saving that creation from death. See, it was sin that brought death into the world and Christ's death for sin made peace between God and us and eventually with the entire creation. See, through Adam, sin came into the world, and death through sin along with it. Through Christ, 
Sin and death, they have been conquered, my friend. First in every human who puts their trust in Jesus. And one day throughout the the creation itself, when Jesus returns to reign as the perfect man, and death and pain and tears will be no more. Jesus is the hero of the whole story of the Bible. From the beginning to the middle, all the way through the end. Jesus is the hero. So how does getting to know Jesus change you? How does getting to know Jesus change me? Only as I see Jesus, uh, not only as I see Jesus as the hero of the Bible, but also when I see Jesus as the hero of my story as well. Now there's a way for us to look at, at Christ in the story of the Bible. The story of the Bible, if you will, occurs in four acts, if you're a, a theater or a drama person, four acts, four scenes. There's the creation, the fall, the redemption, and the restoration. By the way, every person's story has these four acts within it too. And when we're in these acts within our lives, we ask questions. So like when we're in, in the act of creation, where, we ask questions like, who am I? Where did I come from? Why am I here? How, th- how should things be? When we've moved on to fall, we, we ask, why aren't things the way they should be? We ask, what, what's wrong with the world? We might even ask, if we're astute enough, what's wrong with me? We ask, who's to blame for all of this? We go on to redemption. We ask, what's the solution to what's wrong with me and the world? And we'll say, who or what will rescue me from what's broken in my life? We go to that final stage and we, we, in restoration and we ask, what am I really hoping for? I mean, what's the world going to look like when my problem's solved? So you apply this. I applied it. I applied it to my life before I came to know Christ. My story would have sounded like this. See, for as long as I can remember, I was driven by a longing to receive my parents' affirmation and blessing. I think that it went back to the fact that neither of my parents knew the Lord, and specifically my father, he would never, never ever extend his blessing to me. I really just deep down wanted my dad to love me. See, I got all the grades in school. I was the president of every club. I was the president of all my classes. I checked every last box you might imagine that might win my dad's affection, might win his blessing, just so I might feel significant in his eyes. So you apply these questions. Creation, who am I? I believed that I was someone who was designed to pursue a father's affirmation, designed to pursue a father's blessing just to get his love. Fall, what was wrong with me? What was wrong with the world? Well, my problem was that there wasn't really, I couldn't find an accomplishment that would bring enough honor to my family to receive my dad's blessing. I mean, there wasn't a moment where I wasn't driven to succeed or win at something, by the way. Yet, none of what I did ever delivered what I was longing for. And we go on to redemption. We ask the, pro- the question, who's going to rescue me from this problem? Who's my savior? Well, my savior would have been anything that I could have accounted as credit to my name. And we go on to restoration. Again, this is me before Christ. What would my life look like if my problem was solved? Well, as far as I was concerned, easy street. I would have arrived. My dad would have loved me as far as I understood, right? Cloud nine kind of thing. But the thing is, none of what I accomplished ever satisfied the desires of my heart. 
with every grade or every award or every designation that my dad scorned, I lost another savior. See, going into college as someone who was yet a Christian, I had a wonderful resume of accomplishments, but none of them could bring what I was looking for. But I had to go to the low places in life where no one really likes to go. (laughs) You have to arrive at the end of yourself, kind of. You might describe this as being broken. I had to come to the place where I finally learned that I wasn't designed to be loved by my earthly father. What I was designed for was to be loved by Christ. Now I do need to be loved and I do need to be nurtured, but not by any human. See, I was made by Christ, and my problem was that my sins separated me from Him. And I had to have a relationship that I was actually created for. But when I understood the gospel, when I understood what Christ had done for me, when I surrendered to Christ as my King, acknowledging Him as King and Lord and Creator of all, my friend, I finally began to experience the love and the satisfaction that I had been searching for my entire 18 years at that point. And for the first time, I was actually able to be loved. Not because of what anyone could give me, but because of how Christ in me could love others through me. We become Christians through faith in Christ, and we grow by faith in Christ. The difference between committed Christians and everybody else is that the committed Christian is convinced that Jesus is better. And in this case, that Jesus is the better purpose for your life. The better solution for all that ails you. And friend, whether you are a Christian or not, I would urge you this morning to look at yourself. To look at your story through the four acts of the story of the Bible. And come all the way to the conclusion and ask yourself, who's the source of your hope? Who's the source of your hope? From whom do you draw hope? Your kids? Your education? Your wealth? Granddaddy's land that you inherited? If your answer is anything but Jesus... I'm going to end by warning you and encouraging you at the same time. Jesus is better. And my friend, you're going to find that out one way or another. Thank you for tuning in to this message brought to you by First Baptist Church Divine, located at 308 West Hondo Avenue in Divine, Texas. We invite you to be our guests at our 8.30 a.m. or 11 a.m. services each Sunday. You can find more information about First Baptist Church Divine at www.fbcdivine.org, where our mission is to equip all generations to impact lives for Christ. Until next time, may God bless you and keep you.